Hey, I'm Grace Nichols, the Kinship Minister for Soul Force, and you're listening to our new podcast, Go With Grace, responding to white Christian supremacy with resistance and resilience. Soul Force works to end the religious and political oppression of LGBTQI people by decloaking the ideologies of Christian supremacy and healing our community's spirits from weaponized religion. We build radical analysis, political education, and spiritual power for activists across all social justice movements wherever the work is threatened by white supremacy and Christian fundamentalism. We believe that our movements will only win if we can eradicate the ideological system that moralizes and justifies wide-scale violence and injustice, also known as white Christian supremacy. Therefore, our goal is to seed all our movements with a working knowledge of white Christian supremacy, how it functions, and the tools to combat it. We're going to get into it, y'all, and we're going to go with grace. All right, y'all, time to jump back in. Kinship Minister Grace Nichols here. Back again, your neighborhood-friendly drag performer. If you follow us on social media, you might have seen a picture of me with a few members of my drag family. That's Stormy Day, my drag mom, and Naomi Dix, my drag auntie. Uh, that was posted for National Smiles Day. If you are not following us on social media, we are at soulforceorg on all social media platforms. Before we get into episode four, I'm going to kick us off with three things that have grounded and supported me over the past month. The first one being a facilitated conversation through the Allied Media Project with Ross Gay and Adrian Marie Brown. It's called Wisdom of Small Joys. I love this whole conversation, but one of the most memorable moments for me is when Roske encouraged us to study our beloveds who have taught us how to beloved one another. That we must look to and learn from those who make our lives more possible. It was so good. I could talk about it a lot, but for now I'll just say it was really grounding and inspiring and I highly recommend it. Another gift I received over the past few weeks is this new Common song featuring Brittany Howard, and it's called Saving Grace. Uh, my sweet friend Tori sent it to me. Shout out, Tori Bird. Uh, we are definitely kindred of sorts, and my legal name, my legal first name, my adoptive first name is actually also Tori, and it means bird in Japanese, so that's why I call them Tory Bird. But anyway, there's something about this song that made me realize that even though I don't identify as Christian now, it's still really important for me that I hear that Jesus loves me, or more importantly, that there's nothing wrong with me, and that I hear that from Christians in particular, because I have experienced harm from Christians, it's incredibly healing to hear these things, even if that's not my current spiritual practice. And of course, it's also incredibly important that we 
do whatever we can to ensure that for queer and trans people for whom Christianity is the spiritual language they speak, that they know that there is a place for them in Christianity because we all deserve to feel welcome in the communities we identify with. The final thing I want to share is an Instagram post by someone named Lisa Oliveira. Looks like Lisa is an author and fellow adoptee and has a book coming out called Already Enough. My wife has already thoughtfully pre-ordered the book and I'm very excited about it. In the particular Instagram post that I'll share in the show notes, there's an image that says, May we remember to see ourselves as nature, constantly changing, always shifting, blooming, and dying, and birthing, and ending, and becoming, and unbecoming, over and over again. In today's episode, I am back in conversation with co-executive director, Reverend Alba Onofrio, And we dig into a lot of related themes, particularly connected to naming the ingrained messaging around right and wrong and how our society's acceptance of these messages makes it so easy to feel badly about ourselves. We talk about questioning our faith and the possibility it creates when we can get to our own core truths within the context of a faith system that we may have inherited or have been brought up in. I was thinking about this some more and I was reflecting about how powerful it would be for myself and anyone else impacted by white Christian supremacy that when we're told there's something wrong with us, that we're going to hell or we're an abomination or whatever, we can calmly and with conviction simply say, well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that about myself and there's nothing you can say that will make me even question my worth, my holiness, wholeness, humanness, or divinity, nothing. It's incredible to imagine a world where no one is condemned. No one's personhood is questioned for who they are. No one is told they're an abomination for who they are. As an exercise, I have been experimenting with trying to live my life as though I have never heard those messages. Just trying it on and see how that changes things for me. And of course, it's challenging because that's not the reality in which we all live. But I feel like we're really at a point of like, let's do whatever we can do. So try it on. I'm going to try it on and uh, we can continue in this experiment together uh in soul force i think uh, we call that having an indomitable spirit or a spirit unyielding uh, a spirit unwilling 
to succumb to all of these uh, negative and detrimental messages. It's a beautiful thing, and I'm going to keep working on it. In the conversation uh, that I'm sharing today, uh, Reverend Alba and I use the Soul Force theological resource Breaking Open Biblical Literalism and Inerrancy as a reference and lens uh, for the conversation. It's an excellent resource created in 2017 with Reverend Alba as the editor. And one thing I know about them is that they went to divinity school as part of a calling to make that information, the study of theology, accessible for the rest of us, and especially for queer and trans organizers. So extra blessings and gratitude for that work. I hope to do a couple other episodes about our resources, so I want to read a little bit about the resource before getting into the conversation. In the opening of the booklet, it says the Breaking Open series is a compilation of short resources created to provide guidance on challenging scriptural passages and interpretations most often used in ways that harm LGBTQI people and other marginalized communities. Through discussion questions and accessible language, each resource is designed to support you and your communities in building a justice-centered relationship to faith and religion founded on principles of promoting life abundant for all people. A tagline used is a liberating approach to the Bible that transforms scriptural weapons into sources of power. Yes, one of the main weapons of white Christian supremacy is a claim to this literal and inerrant interpretation of the text. Literal meaning very strict and not figurative or metaphorical, and also inerrant, meaning incapable of being wrong. An important distinction to make is that this claim is based on the supposition that the Bible is the direct word of God and therefore incapable of being wrong. However, the resource debunks this myth, and in our conversation, we talk about the immense presence of humanness in the creation of the Bible. And humans are terribly flawed and complex. And that is also the point, that it's not necessarily valuable to label something as right or wrong. And when we think in this binary way, we trap ourselves. So it's more generative to think about a context, a culture, a bias, an influence, um, what was happening at the time of the writing, transcription, translation, and compilation of the Bible. Many things that can be interpreted in many ways. So I'll let us get into the conversation. We try to unpack a bunch of that and 
Also, thanks for tuning in to episode four. If you have any feedback, you can reach me at grace at soulforce.org or message us on any of our social media platforms where our comms Harold Asada de la Cruz can also track that feedback. We get right into it, so I hope you enjoy. I, let's see, I reread the resource, biblical literalism and inerrancy. I guess I'll just be candid, particularly connected to the last episode when I shared my own experience with conversion therapy. And in that episode, I mentioned like, I kind of just keep this stuff like tucked away. Like I don't really talk about it because I, um, I think one aspect I felt like I really had worked through a lot of this stuff. Like that's why I'm active and I do this work because I'm like, I have just worked through some things. Mm -hmm. And as I talked about it again, I was like, oh, this is like, this is still really impacting me. Mm. I feel like luckily I've gone through whatever therapeutic and healing processes. So it doesn't like send me spinning, but it like, yeah, you know, brought up a lot of feelings and I'm still trying to think through uh, the impact, I suppose, of my own experiences and how I'm still trying to be in this work now. Mm -hmm. So I think if I were to fashion all of that into a question, it's like, what, what do I do with, yeah, a lot of that like resentment hurt, I think that I'm feeling. Yeah. You know, it's closely connected to a conversation that I've been having and trying to work on or we're putting together a resource about spiritual violence and trying to explain to someone what is spiritual violence. Like we have the definition that is anytime someone uses, um, you know, in our context, which is a Christian context, anytime someone uses the name of God or the Bible or the tradition or the culture of Christianity or the dogma, the theology, et cetera, to, to take away or to attack someone's inherent goodness, dignity, um, and kind of put the full force of the divine and morality behind that, that is spiritual violence. Um, but when trying to come up with like, you might have been, you might have experienced spiritual violence if this, that, or the other thing happened to you. It's really challenging, right? Because there is a required basic buy-in that is ubiquitous in our culture that we're taught from the time we're born, whether we come from a religious background or not, but there's the whole system is built on certain foundational truths and it requires a deep initial buy-in for any of those spiritual violences to actually get in. So if somebody told me, for example, Chuck E. Cheese hates that you eat hamburgers and therefore you are a bad person because you eat hamburgers and you're an abomination to Chuck E. Cheese, most of us would be like, what? Well, what? Like, you know, it doesn't connect. And yet if somebody says, oh, you're gay, you're an abomination and it is outside the will of God that you are gay and that you are practicing your sexuality, et cetera, that hits us differently, right? Because there's a standard, there's a status quo that already exists. 
And I think some of that deep hurt and resentment comes from the fact that we were brought up to believe in a foundation that has good things, you know, don't kill anybody, don't lie. You know, these things are foundationally good ideas, but built into that system is so much stuff that was actually created by men um, to promote heteropatriarchy, to promote imperialism, to promote um, capitalism and those kinds of um, fear-based and exploitative-based systems of relating between human beings or between people and systems of authority. Therefore, people can do this attacking of our spirits, of our dignity, as our, of our human worth by shortcutting back to that base. It feels like lightning connecting to the ground and like grounding through our bodies. So it's like this really complicated thing to say, like, why is it spiritual violence when someone says you're an abomination, for example? It's because there's already a foundation that has told us that we are bad as LGBT people. And so it's tapping into, it's putting the force of God behind a foundational base of morality that is in and of itself inherently flawed because it wasn't created by God, even though we were taught that it was. It was created by human beings and particularly it was created by elite men to to maintain structures of power that existed. So all of that to say, part of it is just being able to uncover the invisibility of the, the ground that we're, the foundation that we're standing on, recognizing that that is a very biased and mixed bag. It's like a mosaic and some of the things are really good and some of them are really bad. And most of them are conditional, like don't lie. Okay. But if somebody is going to like hurt you because of some identity that you have, or because of your truth, then lying is not immoral. It is a good fucking strategy to save your life. You know? So it's like, so do not lie is not a global truth. And the same thing around homosexuality, like that was put in place with, even with the name homosexual, like even with the title homosexuality, that was a name created to name a thing that then could place it in a moral system of like, this is not good because it upends among other things, patriarchy and heterosexuality in general, if we expand those possibilities. So it feels so hard because I think some of that resentment is like, the mixed upness of like, some of that shit was helpful to me. Some of it was really good for me. Some of it fucking hurts still. And how dare you be either hypocritical, the church or your family or our societies. Like how dare you be so two-faced or like not get it right when I put my heart into that. Does that resonate? Yeah, right. Because I talked about, you know, these were people I, considered friends and family, like people really dear to me, and similar contradictory messages around, we love you no matter what, Mm -hmm. which then ended up not being the case, Uh, actually very conditional love. And yes, that definitely resonated with me and made a lot of sense. The thing you said around, if we were not told what is good and bad, then that would not be the touch point. That wouldn't be the reference. That feels key. And I feel like that's what I'm still trying to figure out how to communicate to myself and other folks, the things around uh, messaging and like the prolific messaging. 
around what is good and bad and how mm-hmm. that gets into our culture. And there's something for me, <laughs> this is the idealist in me. I really did believe and still in my, sometimes in my naivety, that people just don't know. Like if they understood what queer love felt like in my body and my being, how good it was for my spirit, how good it was for my like life trajectory and hope and all those things, then they would understand. Or if they only understood that like the Bible wasn't made into a thing called the Bible for 400 years after Christ died, or if they only understood how translation works and how words get to be chosen by the translators and who was doing the translating or who were the scribes who had enough education to write that down and what were their biases or like there's just this deep uh, naivety I think and desire to believe that we make choices based on all the information that we have and I get really frustrated and disappointed that people are emotional beings even though we are entirely emotional beings, as much as Western rational thought wants to tell us otherwise, what is true is that the fear of losing that which we have known, our churches, our families, our culture, or the fear of being wrong and God judging us, those kinds of emotions, I think, absolutely block even people who are believe themselves to be good God-fearing people from making a change in their attitude and their posture, which is why I feel so much respect for people who are not queer, who have not felt what it feels like in my body when I connect with someone and yet they can change their mind. Because I think that's actually very difficult, even with all the information that proves like there are thousands of animals who have non-heterosexual dynamics and families and groups and procreation and all that stuff. It's still that we work in this emotional way and what Christian supremacy has done has made it so incredibly scary to go against the teachings or what we have been taught is the word of God, that it's, it just blocks the ability to even digest the factual information or the words coming from somebody who you love, that that isn't their experience of what, of what their life is or their body is. Yes, I think... Um... And movement sometimes, yeah, we talk about like not giving people cookies, um, <laughs> white allies, cis, whoever. And the way that white Christian supremacy functions in particular, it's on purpose mm-hmm. that people are fearful and denied information. Mm-hmm. And so it actually is an important breakthrough to say Yes, that that actually is important work and it's appreciated work because there are plenty of other people who have no interest in changing their their thoughts, hearts, and minds. Yeah, I mean, for me, I give them cookies and feel grateful for that willingness to stretch and change their minds because I honestly feel like there but by the grace of God go I. Like I come out of a fundamentalist Christian mm. Mm. culture upbringing background and it was only my queerness it was only my queer desire it was only my queer heart connected to another queer heart that saved me from being Mm. that like you know stuck up I know better than you at my best I want to save your soul at my worst I want to condemn you to hell kind of orientation because it feels great to be like I know the answer. I have the answer. All you have to do is accept my answer and live exactly how I say, because I have 
figured it out and you are wrong if you don't. Like, I'm kind of a know-it-all like that. I feel really passionate as an evangelist for like queer liberation (laughs) and nobody's going to convince me that I'm wrong having had this experience in my own body and and with people that I love. Um, And so I think everything about Christian supremacy sets us up to not only um, congratulate ourselves about our goodness and our faithfulness and our Every blessing that happens is a blessing because we're doing this right path, even when it's hard. And sometimes that hard is like hurting people we love by not accepting them or including them. And so there's so much force, exactly like you said, there's so much force that says the less you question, the greater your faith. And anybody who is willing to step out of that and say, I worship a God who is much bigger than my questions. And if my doubts and concerns threaten that God, that's a very small, very limited, very fragile God. I think that's a humongous deal because as soon as we start taking responsibility for the implications of my theology of what I believe, then the, then the, the, the goal or the target shifts, not from what does this say connected to the Bible or my pastor, but what is this, what is the impact of these beliefs on real human bodies and real human beings? And I don't know humans who can just hurt other people all the time and not feel it in their body or not want to do something different, you know? Mm -hmm. Connected to biblical literalism and inerrancy. So the resource takes us through all those different complexities of translation, the cultural aspects, the people who were translating and um, what kind of experiences they might have had and their influences, all the different versions, et cetera, et cetera. And the thing I wrote down was that if we can acknowledge all of those complexities, all of those human elements, like the Bible is full of human expression. (laughs) And... um, and human error and complexity. And if there's some connections I wanna make in my brain about like human divinity and also, and and God and sacred text being so much more complicated than than people are wanting the Bible to be in particular. Yeah, it's so much easier to be like, here's the right answer, do it and you get a cookie, don't do it and you get in trouble. Um, But it's actually been through some of my Jewish friends talking about the Torah and some of the other um, like adjacent, not scripture, but, but text or interpretations, we call them exegesis of sacred text in their canon um, and religious tradition. And I had a New Testament teacher, Dr. A.J. Levine, who is amazing at Vanderbilt University. And she always says like, do we really think that the authors of the scriptures were just not smart enough to recognize that they're putting multiple versions of the same things? Like, do we not, do we really think that no one actually read Genesis to know that in one text, we have the world being created in seven days with um, the pinnacle of everything being humanity. And then we have the very next chapter, another creation story in which everything is made, humans are made before there was a garden, before all these other things. And so do you really think that for thousands of years that that the authors just Mm -hmm. never caught that those things don't match up? Or do we think that, like, we think that one gospel wasn't sufficient, that we have four gospels 
talking about the life of Jesus? Did we really think that like we needed all four because, you know, one story wasn't like how many of them have the story about Jesus? All of them have the story about the cross. Like, do we really need it four times? Like what, what are we thinking about the authors of the text that we have so many versions, for example, of the life of Jesus. And the basis of that, um, what she was saying was like, the point of sacred text is to be the point of departure for human conversation and discernment, not to be the conclusion. This is the introduction, not the conclusion. And that orientation feels so contrary to everything that Christian supremacy taught me around like, oh, we see how, for example, um, Mark really cares about the humanness of Jesus and is the oldest gospel. And so he's writing things that kind of don't go together, like there are spots in between it. And you're like, how did we get from here to there? We have, um, you know, Luke, who cares a whole lot about the poor and about the oppressed. And so almost everything in that gospel really highlights the economic disparities, the gender disparities, and how Jesus is working to like rescue the image of these outcasts into being included in the kingdom. We have Matthew, who is very Jewish and cares a lot about Jesus having fulfilled the law. So almost everything is pulling back from the prophets who are talking about the Messiah and getting those all neat around, you know, the whole lineage of um, Jesus through Joseph to get back to David, you know, all this stuff because he cares a lot about the law. And then we have John who's just way the hell out there talking about the spirit and the word and the word was, was God and was with God, all this like very spiritual woo-woo, non-concrete kind of stuff. And so the whole point is like, this is all giving us insight, right? And so just like Genesis is giving us insight around why do we have a seven day week? Or why do we suffer? Or why do women suffer in childbirth? All these things that that humans are trying to grapple with and figure out. And when we see it as a point of departure, then we can have some really good conversations to try to discern individually and in community, what are our ethics? What do we believe? Where do we disagree with? I mean, one of my favorite things about the Bible, particularly in the gospels, is Jesus's full humanity comes out. And a lot of times we want to make Jesus fully divine, but the foundation of Christian faith that was decided on by men in the fourth century was that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. And so the fully human part often just gets skipped over. But when we look at like the story of the Syrophoenician woman, she's telling Jesus off. She's like, how dare you basically only help your own people when all of us are humans and deserve it, right? And Jesus changes, shifts the entire course of his ministry to include Gentiles and all the other stuff based on a conversation. I mean, I'm sure based on other experiences, but we have an ex- and a story that exists in multiple gospels of Jesus learning from a woman that he basically called a dog, you know, just like a bitch, literally. And she's like, I will not go without my blessing. And that shifts the course of his ministry, which to me says Jesus also had to learn, also had to unlearn shit, and had to learn just like all humans do, because if he really came here fully human and he didn't ever learn, he didn't ever change his mind, that's not fully human. <laughs> so all that to say, blah, blah, blah. But all that to say, this idea of humanness is really rich and creates so much more possibility for conversation rather than judgment and condemnation and fear. 
Right. And the, the creators, compilers of the Bible made a choice to include that particular story that you just shared as well. So, Multiple of them. It happens um, in like at least two gospels and long detail. That's great. I definitely feel like if I had had that invitation around a, a jumping off point, um, a source uh, as something that can prompt questioning and discovery, I feel like I would be in a much different relationship with Christianity right now. We all might be a little more humble, you know, like just being humans trying to figure it out and recognizing that 2000 years ago there were and 3000 years ago, there were also humans trying to figure it out. And this was the best they could do based on their own experience and context. And we're still trying to do that. And now it shows up in lots of different ways, not just sacred text, but I would call poetry sacred text I would call song sacred text I would call interpersonal dynamics those are like those relations are sacred text and they express themselves in and on our bodies Um, which is why we say the ways that God is alive and speaking I feel most closely through being in relationship with others like you in our community Mm -hmm. Mm. I feel like there's so much more um we could talk about <laughs> always 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 <laughs> and it it feels like even in this short conversation like a relief for that reframe interestingly around the humanness part i i think all mixed up into that we have to remember like more of the divinity part of things a part of us somehow just naming that we are complex people. I've heard something recently um, uh, naming that you know our ancestors are whole complex people. And I feel like I've said this on the podcast before, but like that seems like the invitation. That feels grounding to me somehow. Like the complexity feels grounding to me. <laughs> um, it, it takes us out of the binary, takes us out of binary thinking. Uh, which feels like a trap. Mm-hmm. Always a trap. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and if we can be more complex about it, actually kind of, you know, let, let the air out of the room a little bit. I do want to wrap up, but I, I think one other point that feels key is like the specific wielding of sacred texts to cause harm for like bigger harmful projects, colonialism being the the biggest one I'm I'm thinking of right now. I want to point that out because it seems like in naming the complexity, there are people, you know, and I'm not, I'm not even sure when identifying as Christian became a thing. (laughs) Spiritual folks who really took uh, Jesus's guidance, who took um, other faith leaders at the time um, as, as really important healing work. And then I think those who like made a conscious choice to be like, we can exploit this to gain power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just want to name that difference. This feels like so key to me. It feels like, I think, a contradiction that Christianity as a whole holds. 
Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's always connected with the project of religion plus power. Like we always, always mm-hmm. say like Christian supremacy is the parasitic relationship between religion and power. And there was this moment where I was like, all right, fine. We'll make it like a le- you're legally allowed to be Christian. And um, it's part of a imperialist system, Roman empire. So if you have this religion that we're now going from making illicit to licit, we need to understand who gets to count as this group of people called Christian, because now you're allowed to exist and practice this religion and everybody else who doesn't, we need to know so that we can be like, you're outside of the law and therefore like you're going to get arrested or whatever. Like you have to pick one of these religious systems that you're a part of. So before that, there have been a lot of expansiveness for people to have different sacred texts, to have different traditions, to have different versions of the gospel about Jesus. And so there's like, they're like, all right, literally, Constantine was like, y'all can't leave this room. Y'all dudes here at Nicaea cannot leave this room until you get all your shit figured out because y'all are messy in what you believe. And I have to be able to enforce this with law enforcement behind me with the military force of an empire. And so there have to be like standards of like, this is acceptable, this is not acceptable, this is what you believe, this is not what you believe, because how the hell am I gonna enforce it as the, as the like leader of this empire if y'all are all messy all over the place? And I say all that to say, because it creates this relationship where all of the biases, all the patriarchy, all of the elitism, all that other shit just gets baked into the cake of what is now legally allowed to be Christian. And anything that is not that is called heresy and gets burned at the stake, gets put on a post, gets imprisoned, whatever, whatever, um, all the way up until today, right? Like the conversion therapy, that's other forms of heresy that's worth, that like Christians are trying to get out of the real Christianity. So part of that use that is harm that's about harm is around this military force, this law enforcement orientation to policing people's beliefs in order to keep us in neat boxes. Um, and some of us believe those things with all of our heart because that's what was taught to us. And we have to do a lot of work to try to connect the dots back to the political systems to be able to even start questioning like, but why is that true? Like, what does anal sex between two people that are not me have to do with like my safety or well-being? Absolutely nothing is the answer. And yet we have whole systems of law to reinforce sodomy laws because they're somehow bad. You know, so there's just, it's complicated, but it also just starts at a basic trying to control and police other people's beliefs and bodies to keep systems of government and structures of power in place. And I mean, and if we can name and expose these things, like give people that basic understanding, the hope is that they can see it, that that is still very alive today. Mm-hmm. Impact of that is, um, you know, that's like the root and that is what has grown um, in into our culture and into our policies. Um, I'm thinking about the 13th Amendment and the criminalization of Black folks. It's all really moral based. So there was like the abolishment of slavery, but then the 13th Amendment says essentially slavery can still exist if someone is convicted of a crime. 
So mm -hmm. then, um, increased criminalization of uh, black folks or anyone else um, that society- Poor folks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it, re it reminds me so much of this. Uh, we talk about like Bayard Rustin's like angelic troublemakers and the quote by MLK Jr. Um, that says, you know, we have a legal and moral responsibility to obey just laws, but on the other side, we have a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws, mm -hmm. which is this idea that laws, just because they're laws, doesn't, don't make them just and don't make them right and doesn't mean that we have to follow them just because. I wish that we could transpose that onto religion and theology, right? We have a, a moral responsibility to obey, you know, religious laws or beliefs or moralities that we ascribe to when they are just. On the other hand, when, when our sacred text as Christians has slavery as acceptable, has misogyny and like owning women as part of what is allowed to happen or imposing our bodies onto other part, other people's bodies alongside homophobia, alongside all these other things. It is our moral responsibility. And I would say our religious responsibility to disobey those teachings and to call them out and question them as unjust, because just because they're written or just because people interpreted these writings this way in the past or still do today, does not make them just in and of themselves. It feels like we put this label of the word of God on this text, but that is something that we put on that text. And therefore we as people also have to be able to be critical of that text and know better. If we, if we have a law, a religious law that says don't harm others, then when the Bible is showing a God that's harming others, we have to question like, what kind of God are we talking about? Who wrote this down like this? <laughs> Why do we believe this is true? Uh -huh. So in the BLI resource, there are all these prompts uh, to get people to think a little bit more deeply. Do you have any type of example or have you witnessed like the value in people questioning their faith? Um, I have to say that for me, I never questioned the existence of God. So when I would get in conversations with mm -hmm. philosophers and philosophy students, they would want to have this conversation like, well, what if God exists or what if God doesn't exist and how do we know? And I'm like, my lived experience, the miracles I've been a part of don't allow me the liberty to imagine what if God doesn't exist. I know that God exists. God is as real to me as you are sitting in front of me. Like that is just my lived experience. What to do with God is a whole other situation. But so my question is more like, okay, knowing that God exists, what kind of God is this? And how do I know that that's God, right? And so um, that takes most of us through the fire of purification, just like gold and other metals, when you heat them up and they start to separate and you get like, you can distill what is the purest, what is the most core of what you believe. I call those um, undeniable truths. And once you get to whatever those are for you, God makes a lot more sense, whatever you add to that. So for some people, I think, some people I think don't think about it very much, but I think a lot of people somehow get to this level, like God is love. That's not my orientation. I would say for me, God is life and life force. And so anything that goes along what I would call my ethic of life, which is like, 
if this thing contributes to life and life abundant for creation, for me, for other beings, then I'm going to call that good. And if it doesn't, I'm going to call that bad. And that's because the God I know fights for life every single day, every minute of every day, all of the planet and beyond. For a lot of people, it's like God is love, which is the same basic premise of like, this is the measuring stick against which I'm going to judge lots of things, theology, people's laws, et cetera. Um, so I think there's something about that question. You've got to be willing to go deep. You got to be willing to go through the fire to distill and be willing to like let go of and let melt away the things that were really wonderful. It's like, I thought it was so wonderful to be the princess of a king. I was like, I am the daughter of the king because God is the king of kings and I am God's child. That makes me princess. And I was like ready for my tiara. And there's some of that that I just had to let go of. I really believe that God was with me in suffering and with others in suffering. Then that isn't the like patriarchal reigning monarch who like, you know, bestows blessings on some and curses on others. And so that was a hard vision of God to let go of because I really love the like Disney princess version of being a princess, um, especially as a working class, like rural Appalachian child growing up but it's like you got to be willing to be like all right I'm going to get serious and I'm going to be consistent which for me is what faith is about it isn't just shutting up and swallowing whatever you're given it's about really going into your soul and so I don't know that it's ever not good even if you come out the other side being like I don't believe in God this shit is fucked up and like I'm out it's still a place at least for me, of integrity when the discernment has happened and people are willing to hold what they are actually going to cling to and let go of what is not serving them or the rest of us. And so I know plenty of humanists or atheists who live much more integral, uh, integritous lives than a lot of Christians because they're willing to go deep into those questions and, and be self-reflective and and choose how they live out their life and their ethics, not based on an imposed external force, but rather the consequences of what they believe and how that moves in the world. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Questions as purification. <laughs> That's good. That's fun. Thank you. I love this shit. I'll talk about as long as you want to, any day, all the time. (laughs) Oh, it's great. It was really helpful to revisit DLI. So I'm excited for hopefully some more folks to work with it. Yeah. Uh, um, Thanks so much for talking with me today. Always. Every day. Any day. (laughs) That's all for this episode. We're going to dig into the resource a little bit more on Twitter during our next Soul Force Sunday School that will take place on October 17th. So look out for that. You can find the resource, Biblical Literalism and Inerrancy, as well as others at www.soulforce.org resources. And episode five will come out seventh until then i hope you are enjoying the season transition into fall finding things that bring you joy and in all that you do may grace be with you that's a new sign off for me i hope it was fun for you
Take care, y'all. Bye-bye.